Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In this episode, we'll be asking, can a novel set in the near future help policymakers understand artificial intelligence? You have a fast-paced, hopefully entertaining story, but you also have over 300 explanations and predictions of everything from how does AI work to what will be the effect of all of this on our politics. And how do you make charging cables for electric vehicles disappear? Managing to get the two coils to resonate together, it is now possible to transmit that energy over a longer distance. On May the 1st, North Korean state media published images of Kim Jong-un at the opening ceremony of a factory in Suncheon, a city in the province of South Pyongan. Nothing strange about that, but the North Korean leader's appearance came after an unexplained absence, lasting three weeks, during which he failed to attend the celebration of North Korea's most important public holiday, the birthday commemoration for his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, the country's founding despot. This had led to much speculation about Mr Kim's health. Some sources suggested he was having an operation. There were even rumours that he had died. Mr Kim's reappearance put paid to that suggestion, but his three-week vanishing act has reignited speculation about what would happen if his regime collapsed. Before I go into the security aspects of a North Korea collapse, it's important to note that there is huge humanitarian implications of a North Korean collapse. Oriana Schuyler Mastro is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and she's long been a close observer of North Korea. You have individuals who are starving, who are poor, who would have to, you know, assimilate to a new regime, or even if there's reunification, the costs, the social and economic costs of reunification with South Korea are very high. So the human costs are significant. Now, perhaps you could start by setting the scene for us. So what exactly happened in North Korea in April and May? Well, what happened, and it's not the first time that it's happened, it happens every once in a while that the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, disappeared from the public stage for quite some time. So we track when he is making public appearances. And in April, we knew on April 12th, he had a cardiovascular procedure. So we know for a fact that he had this operation then. I would say that uh, sources confirmed he did have that operation. Sources in South Korea as well as in China that we find credible. Now, North Korea is a closed society, so I guess we didn't hear it from Kim Jong-un himself. But that is, in my opinion, a recognized fact that the operation did occur. Okay. now obviously there was a lot of speculation while he had disappeared. What's the situation with his successor? Does he have a successor? So the short answer to that is no. It depends on how you define a successor. There's sort of an official successor, usually in these types of situations. You have a family dictatorship like that of North Korea. It's actually very rare. This is different than broader autocratic regimes that also need successors. Like Xi Jinping, for example, in China, we're waiting to see who his successor would be. But in family dictatorships, the legitimacy of the regime stems from being a part of the family. So you have to find someone who is not only competent, but also has the support of the elites, but that is also a 
a family member, and that can be very difficult. In Kim's case, usually it's uh, the son, right? He took over from his father and his father from his father, but his eldest son is 10 years old. So it looks like that would be an unlikely scenario, or if the 10-year-old did take over, it'd be quite unstable. There's also some speculation that his sister might take over, and she hasn't really had the positions necessary to earn credibility, right? I mean, she represented North Korea at the Olympics, but that's different than Kim, who had positions like in the military and intelligence apparatus before he took over. And there's also a lot of speculation about having a female leader. So there are a few individuals that commentators like myself might point to and say, oh, maybe this person or that person could take over. But this really understates how difficult these successions are. There has never been a passing of power from a third generation to a fourth generation in a family dictatorship. Now, you know this because you've done an analysis, in fact, of 31 autocratic hereditary regimes since the Second World War. So that's what you found, that they really would be breaking a record if they managed to pass on the leadership to the next generation. Right. In some ways, by passing it on to the third generation, to Kim Jong-un, they broke some records. There is one other case of a third generation uh, that is not quite as clean as the North Korean case, and that's in, in Nicaragua. But this would be unprecedented because the legitimacy of the regime gets weaker and weaker the farther you move away from the founder. So what you're saying then is that at some point, even if it's not the point that we thought it was this month, there is going to be instability when that handover comes. And also, in addition to that, it's not that we see a lot of indicators of instability ahead of time. Usually, when these regimes collapse, they do so unexpectedly and very rapidly. So the fact that we see no indicators now that a collapse is coming next week doesn't actually mean that it's not coming. And I think that's also a big takeaway. So what would the risks of a collapse be for the region and for the world? One of our planning assumptions is that uh, if there were instability in North Korea and there looked like there might be a collapse, you might also have a major war associated with it. And what's the specific scenario that you're imagining there, that America goes in to try and get hold of the North Korean nuclear weapons? I mean, what leads to that conflict? So it depends on who you ask. I think before President Trump, the main assumption was that a war would be caused by North Korea, either during an instability or collapse scenario because of fighting of power among different elites, you might see individuals lashing out. Or even if Kim Jong-un himself is losing power, in order to maintain his power, you know, he might have some sort of diversionary attack South Korea type of strategy. Or China has to invade North Korea because the instability is affecting them on the border. Now, after President Trump came to power with some of of his maximum pressure campaigns, there's an additional possibility, which is sort of the United States takes the initiative to invade North Korea if it looks like there's an opportunity to get rid of this regime once and for all. So we can't completely discount that possibility. But for the most part, we sort of debate countries entering North Korea in order to stabilize the situation. And we don't know how the North Korean army is going to respond to that. Is this going to be a scenario like the Persian Gulf War in which they sort of all give up relatively immediately? Or are we going to have counterinsurgency in North Korea for decades to come? So that's also part of the wartime scenario. Part of my research about Chinese intervention is the U.S. plan is to secure all the nuclear weapons, but 80% of these facilities are close to the Chinese border. I would place all my bets on China securing the facilities before we get there. 
So what does that mean for the political future of the Korean Peninsula if the United States isn't in charge of denuclearizing the peninsula, but China is? So that's also something that the United States military, I think, is not adequately planning for. Right. It sounds like there are a lot of ways that this could go. But your main takeaway is that this could happen very quickly if and when it happens. How much has the outbreak of the coronavirus made it easier or more difficult for people who, like you, are trying to draw attention to crises that are hiding in plain sight and could flare up at any time? So I've made this argument about China that for many years, while it's been unfortunate, maybe the political situation in China, that most people, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, didn't really care, right, about the political environment in China. But as China becomes more powerful, how they see the world and how they view the exercising of power impacts everyday Americans. And if anything, I think COVID has really brought home the point that we no longer live in a world in which what happens in one country has no impact on anyone else. How China deals with things at home very much can affect the lives of everyday uh, individuals in other countries. So I think that has indeed come to the forefront for a lot of people around the world that they think, okay, we need to pay more attention to what these countries are, are doing. Yes, COVID-19 means we are looking at the world in a very different way. Oriana Scala-Mastro, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Next, when reviewing or forming new policy frameworks, where do politicians and advisors draw their inspiration from? We've talked in the past on this podcast about how science fiction can be helpful in thinking about the future. For example, innovators have often been inspired to build the futuristic things they've seen on screen or read about on the page. The handheld wireless communicators in Star Trek prompted the creation of mobile phones at Motorola, for example, and Amazon's Alexa voice assistant, hello Alexa, was inspired by the talking computer on the Starship Enterprise. Sci-fi can also help broaden the mind when assessing future scenarios for planning purposes, both in government and business. And that's the jumping off point for a new book that's trying something a little different. So Burden is a uh, new kind of book that blends fiction and nonfiction. This is Peter Singer. As well as being an author, he's also a strategist at New America, a think tank, and he was previously a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's known in general as an expert on the future of war. It's a techno thriller. It follows the hunt for a terrorist through Washington, D.C. about 20 years from now. But at the same time, it's sharing the latest nonfiction research on how AI and automation is going to reshape our world. I'm a parent. Uh, think of it as sneaking the vegetables into the smoothie. So you have a fast-paced, hopefully entertaining story, but you also have over 300 explanations and predictions of everything from how does AI work to what will be the new cybersecurity risks to what will be the effect of all of this on our politics, on our economy, even on our family lives. Now, you've done this kind of thing before with a book called Ghost Fleet a few years ago, which imagined a future world war. So what are the advantages of mixing fact and fiction in this way? And what are you trying to achieve? Is it just about expanding the audience? So what happened with Ghost Fleet is that it was a reality-based fiction, and we were struck, my co-author August Cole and I, by not just you know people enjoying the story, but also the amazing 
real-world impact that it had. I was invited to brief the real-world lessons of this novel uh, everywhere from the White House Situation Room to the tank, the conference room inside the, the Pentagon for the Joint Chiefs, all sorts of military bases. The U.S. Navy even named a 3.6 billion U.S. dollar ship program Ghost Fleet. With Burnin, we decided to take it a little bit further. So it wasn't just a spin out from it. It was a design from the very start. And as far as we're aware, this has never been done before. When you say not just a spin out, what was Ghost Fleet spun out from then? So with Ghost Fleet, we did not set out at the start of it for it to have that kind of impact. Our original goal was to write a really entertaining story. And we were both experts in the real world, so we were drawing from real world issues. But it did not have literally the origin as both a combination of entertainment and research, nor did it have how Burnin has, where as you're reading, you see not just you know what's playing out in the story, but it documents the real world aspect of it. So for example, it might be a detail in the background, two characters talking and a six rotor delivery drone flies overhead. And then you see the little number in the text, just like you would in a um, nonfiction book that takes you to the end note that says, oh, six rotor delivery drone. That's not what these guys dreamed up. Here's the Amazon patent for it. Or it might be a scene where a character is hunting for a terrorist in a crowd at a train station. And they're seeing all of this uh, face recognition technology pop up and give them information on all the different faces in the crowd. But part of the challenge is that the AI starts to steer them towards the things that the AI has been trained to steer them towards. So just because uh, these are the people in the crowd with the criminal record doesn't mean that's actually the criminal that you're working for. It's a really cool kind of sci-fi seeming scene, but it's also about teaching us about this idea called algorithmic bias, where um, the AI can actually bias you to a certain behavior. A more personal example would be look at new kinds of crimes where someone might not just steal, you know, your credit card information, a criminal could carry out a murder by going through a smart home and conducting arson. The idea for that came from a real world demonstration of how to hack an electrical light system. So this idea of blending the two, basically it's to one, share real-world research that we did. You know, we did everything from build a massive database of all the different predictions that have been done of which jobs are going to be automated or not. And then drawing from that, you can see that play out in certain of the characters and their identity. But a different example would be in terms of research, we interviewed everything from AI scientists to people in law enforcement to people who worked on the design of the water systems of cities who revealed to us the insane level of vulnerability that was being baked in them that would allow a bad guy, a terrorist, to hack not just your computer, but the entire water system for a city. Okay, so there's an educational angle to this, but are there specific policy prescriptions you have in there as well? Because given the impact that your previous book had, are you hoping that you know this will actually lead to, to real changes? Yeah, what you actually see is the experience of different characters 
as they play through the scenarios of how the technologies are used and some of the policies that surround them. And this actually goes back to the very title of the book itself. A burn-in is a term from engineering and technology where you deliberately push something new, like a technology, to the breaking point in order to learn from it. And so from that, you get to understand, okay, here are some of the policy proposals that are being put out there. Everything from mass level of surveillance to universal basic income, giving everybody a check. Here's how it will look like in execution. And here will be some of the responses and effects of it and counters to that. So if you are pushing for this policy, you better also assume these sorts of things are going to happen. And as a result of that, we've also been able to, even before the book came out, brief its lessons to groups that ranged from U.S. Military Cyber Command to JSOC, that's uh, Joint Special Operations Command, that's the group that famously got bin Laden. It was even used as the preface to what was called the Cyber Solarium Commission Report. For those of your listeners that are not familiar with it, the Cyber Solarium was this government commission made up of senators in the U.S. from both parties, etc., that set out to essentially rewrite all of U.S. cybersecurity strategy. And the opening of it was actually drawn from Burnin. It made it a first for both U.S. government documents and science fiction to see this kind of blending of fiction and real, but also to see this kind of impact even before the book came out. So it's been a remarkable ride already, and we're really excited to see what happens next with it. Well, there you are. Further evidence that fiction can help us see the future. Peter Singer, thank you very much for telling us about your approach. Thanks so much and stay well. The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments, and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19. Some worst case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, electric vehicles have been getting cheaper and more capable, but there's one area where traditional vehicles still have a big advantage. You can refuel them quickly and easily in just a few minutes. Although networks of fast charging stations are being built on motorways and in big cities, there's still a bit of a problem, the lack of a universal charging standard. Like mobile phones, electric cars use a variety of charging systems with different sorts of cables and sockets. But these days, you can charge a phone by resting it on a wireless charging pad. So can the same approach be applied to cars? Someone who's been writing about this is Paul Markilli, The Economist's innovations editor. Hello, Paul. Hello, Tom. 
So how does charging an electric vehicle without wires, how does that actually work? Well, it works in pretty much the same way as you might charge up your electric toothbrush or your mobile phone for that instance. But if you do that with any of those devices, you know you have to be very close, if not touching the charge pad, and it must be precisely aligned, otherwise nothing happens. Well, a car sits some way off the ground, so you need a more beefed-up version of what that is, and it's a process called induction charging. And basically what happens is a an electric current creates a magnetic field in the charging pad, and that generates another current in the coil of the receiving device, which is a toothbrush or a car. Now, what's changed is that... Uh, they've got these systems to become more powerful and they're by managing to get the two coils to resonate together it is now possible to transmit that energy over a longer distance and also not to have to be precisely aligned so you don't have to sort of drive in and park very carefully to make sure you're right over the charging pad you could just sort of pull up and the car would connect automatically and just start charging. So how efficient is this? I mean, if, you know, how much of the energy that's being pumped out of the sending coil is actually making it into the receiving coil? Well, there's always been a belief that this stuff is not actually very efficient, but in fact it is. The new systems are hitting sort of 93, 94% efficiency, which is actually pretty close to that of a plug-in charger system, which also doesn't, in fact, deliver 100% because there are losses in that system as well. So in efficiency terms, it's pretty much similar to a plug-in system now. Okay, so who's doing this? Because obviously with mobile phones, we've had this proliferation of different shaped plugs and all the rest of it. So who are the players in this case? Well, there's a number of companies, many of them, of course, startups. Waitricity is uh, one of the main ones. Now, that company has actually got some systems for cars up and running. Uh, They've got one that BMW is having a look at. Standards will be the next big hurdle to overcome. And there has been some movement on this. China has come up with some standards, which a few companies are working with. There's still Now, whether everybody follows these or not, of course, is another matter. But, of course, China is very aggressive in promoting electric vehicles. So there's a good chance that people will. And to be honest, you know, if we really want a charging system that's easy, convenient and flexible, we don't really have to worry about and mess around with cables, then one that meets the universal standard standard is what we want. Okay, what about commercial vehicles and buses and things like that? Could this work for any vehicle? Yes, it is already a a company called Momentum Dynamics. They're already doing systems that recharge uh, electric shuttle buses. And the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, they recently demonstrated a 20 kilowatt setup that takes about three hours to recharge the 60 kilowatt hour battery in a hybrid UPS delivery truck. And they've also done a wireless system, which they think could match a Tesla supercharger, which is one of the fastest plug-in systems available. So it sounds like the technology works and it sounds like we might get a standard in a few years. How might that then work? Could you do things like, for example, have chargers next to traffic lights and things? Could you be taking little bits of charge throughout the day as you drive around in a vehicle or, you know, you're sitting in a bus that's driving around? Would that work? It would. Um, Electricity recently bought a company that was looking at uh, charging up vehicles on the move. I mean, there has been an idea of sort of digging up one lane of the motorway and putting a charging lane in there so you charge up as you drive along. Now, in reality, that's a massive infrastructure investment, and I don't think people think it's really a, a starter. But there is a way of could be done where vehicles queue up or slow down regularly, such as when you pull up at traffic lights, there could be an area there where you top up vehicles. Or if you're waiting 
waiting at an airport in a, in a queuing lane. You could top up there. So that sort of topping up while you move or rather while you creep along, I think is going to happen. And finally, if you can transmit power over distances like this, why aren't we using it more widely? I mean, could we use this so that, you know, wherever I go in my house, my laptop is recharging and my phone and if you really can do it safely over longer distances? Well, that probably would be possible. Wittricity was uh, based on work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology where they did something pretty much like that. They were able to transmit over a two-metre gap enough power to illuminate a 60-watt bulb. So, you know, you could maybe just put a bulb somewhere and light it up at a distance. And that was safe, was it? If you were in that two-metre gap, you weren't getting fried. Yes, they said that was safe, and indeed there are pictures of them standing between bulb and transmission. OK, so maybe we'll be able to get rid of charging cables for everything. It's an exciting prospect. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can listen to and read more of our journalism by subscribing to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.